Hyperfixation Nation, and welcome back to the Get Your Fix podcast. I am your host, Vaughn Reyes. Um, and if this is your first time listening, the Get Your Fix podcast is a place for us to chat all things fandom, good, bad, and ugly. No matter what property it is that you are interested in, um, this is the place to be to chat fandom. And this is the third episode. So uh, if you're uh, coming back to listen again, thank you so much and uh, good to see you again. It's just little old me this week and I am going to be pivoting a little bit from the first two episodes. So uh, if you have listened to episodes one and two, uh, you'll see, probably notice a trend that I have primarily been talking about music so far, which totally makes sense. As I mentioned in my first episode, music is a huge driver of my life. I've made most of my friends uh, around shared interests in music. Um, so, you know, there's probably going to be tons and episodes about music uh, along the way. Um, but for episode three, I thought let's mix it up a little bit and talk about a property that has been near and dear to my heart for many years and in many ways was an introduction to fandom for me. I've had a, a couple of those experiences. I would say introduction to like music fandoms would be Fall Out Boy, like I mentioned. You know, there's lots of different fandom out, fandoms out there and lots of different properties. So I'm going to be talking about a childhood favorite, and that is Yu-Gi-Oh! Duel Monsters. And so if you are not familiar with Yu-Gi-Oh!, um, I don't blame you, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, it is definitely one of those things that I feel like a specific subset of nerds in the early 2000s was into Yu-Gi-Oh! And I actually don't have any friends currently that are still into it. So I'm kind of on an island on my own there, but I was really passionate about it and I love so many things about it. So um, as usual, I'm going to get into a little bit of a deep dive, a little bit of a, a background and history about the property itself, and then uh, just chat through my my history with it and why I think it's had such an impact on me. So for for my, my old school, like nerdy bros, this one is for us. Um, so let's jump in. It was originally a manga, um, and so it was uh, published in, in chaptered iterations uh, in weekly Shonen Jump, which uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with Shonen Jump, it's like a weekly magazine uh, from the late 90s, early 2000s that had a serialized manga. So it was really cool. It was like, if you wanted to read the new chapter of the latest manga you were reading, you had to get the latest uh, issue of Shonen Jump, which was so fun. Uh, Pokemon was in there. Um, there's, there has been lots of series that have been, uh, serialized in Shonen Jump and, um, Shonen, if you're, uh, kind of new or not familiar with anime and manga, Shonen is like the, uh, kind of action adventure anime and manga genre that's like kind of tailored towards young boys or young men. Um, there's usually like a chosen one protagonist of some kind. Um, so, you know, we're talking like Naruto. Uh, Dragon Ball Z, um, Pokemon is a shonen, My Hero Academia, that kind of thing. So Yu-Gi-Oh! was the one of the first shonens that I got really into. And I uh, first saw it on WB4Kids on like Saturday morning cartoons. So I was watching like Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh!, Kirby, you know, all those four kids like animes that had been... Uh, like almost sanitized and republished for American television. Um, and I was totally hooked, addicted from like the very first episode. So uh, the Yu-Gi-Oh! started in September of 1996. And the manga was published until 2004, the original series, and then was adapted into an anime. And uh, kind of similar. So I would say in the 90s and 2000s, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon were kind of duking it out as like 
the most popular manga turned anime turned game in the meat space that you could actually play. At least in my opinion, what uh, separated them and kind of helped them st- each stand on their own two feet with their own fan groups was Yu-Gi-Oh! really pivoted into a card game. Like a real playable card game. Um, and uh, Pokemon cards really were more of collectibles. Like not a ton of people were super into the Pokemon card game. Um, Pokemon really got its legs in video games, right? So, you know, Pokemon video games are cult classics forever and ever and ever. I mean, I'm still playing Pokemon games and I'm actually really excited to eventually do the Pokemon episode on the Get Your Fix podcast, but I will have a very fun guests for that one. But so Yu-Gi-Oh! really got its legs as a, as a card game and, and that's how it sunk its teeth into me as a young boy. But I watched the anime. I was really, really into it, um, tuned in every week started buying Shonen Jump every week uh, just to kind of like catch up with it, keep up with it. And so the uh, original Yu-Gi-Oh! series follows the uh, famous young boy Yu-Gi with the spiky blonde, red, and black hair, very iconic hair to this day, gets cosplayed and uh, memed a whole bunch. So yeah, it follows Yu-Gi Moto, who stumbles upon this ancient artifact from Egypt that is, uh, I believe it's gifted to him from his grandfather, if I recall. And it's called the Millennium Puzzle. And so he uh, solves this Millennium Puzzle, which is like this gold pyramid-shaped puzzle necklace thing. And then solving the Millennium Puzzle becomes the host of this pharaoh of ancient times, of dual monsters of the ancient past, um, named Yami. So we have Yami and Yugi sharing a body. So that's kind of the original, that's how we, that's how things kick off. So Yugi is not very popular. um, And I think uh, this is kind of what drew me to the series, at least, is that he's skinny, he's short, he's bullied, he has niche interests. um, You know, he has his like three close friends that are, you know, his rider dies. But other than that, he's like kind of bullied at school. And I remember seeing myself in Yugi so much and being like, oh my gosh, there's this main character of a show that feels like me. Um, you know, he wasn't like super badass or anything like that. And he was small and I was small and I still am small. So loved Yugi, uh, loved Yami. Yami was kind of the like dark Yugi. So he was a little bit taller. Um, he didn't, he had like more severe eyes. His voice was deeper. He had this kind of like really badass personality. Um, and so, you know, Yugi's kind of trying to figure out how to share a body with a, an ancient pharaoh, a king of the dark past. So yeah, that's where it all kicks off. Um, and Yugi's three best friends um, in high school are, of course, Joey, Tristan, and Taya, uh, which was really fun. Uh, Joey has this like kind of corny, overwrought, like trying to be New York accent. Um, and I think the the goal of this was that he was supposed to be foreign, like from the States going to high school in Japan. But it, it was pretty funny. Um, and I loved Joey. He's kind of the comic relief character a little bit. Um, and so is Tristan. Joey and Tristan are kind of a duo. Um, and Joey and Tristan are a very popular ship also. So Tristan and Joey are very close. And then Taya is like the token girl character with the gaggle of boys that you often see in Shonen. Um, she's the voice of reason. She is the only one with a brain, really. But something refreshing about Yu-Gi-Oh! to me was that Yugi um 
is also a very intelligent, like self-assured character, despite, you know, being bullied and, and being small and going through this weird, fantastical experience. Him and Taya are very close because he's not that like typical bumbling shonen character that's like haughty with a huge ego and doesn't listen. And so it, it's a little bit subversive to me, actually. Um, and I think it's uh, more more of a complex uh not even complex, but more nuanced uh, masculinity that's characterized around Yugimoto, which I think is really what what drew me to the series. And so, you know, all of them are super into the card game, the newest card game that's been like sweeping the nation, which is Duel Monsters, right? So they're all getting really into it. Um, it's a card battling game where players use different monsters, essentially, um, in duels against each other. And there are also spell cards and trap cards in addition to monsters. And the card game was invented by Pegasus, who has the Millennium Eye. And so what we find as we're getting into this series is that there are these Millennium items that are kind of scattered around the world and have been dispersed to different people that have different connections to what is known as the Shadow Games. And the Shadow Games was the card game that it's a battle game that Pegasus based the card game on. So essentially Pegasus discovered the uh, ancient pharaohs of in Egypt past, discovered the hieroglyphics that showed them playing the shadow games, and he designed his uh, card game around that. But there's these like reincarnation elements that, you know, is really fun in the lore. So like obviously Yami, the, the game master, the pharaoh, uh, Yugi is his reincarnation and just happens that his spirit is possessing a body at the same time because it was trapped in the puzzle. Um, but there are a couple of reincarnates also. So my one of my original favorite characters of all time is Seto Kaiba. Uh, Kaiba is Yugi's shonen rival. Every shonen needs a good rival, right? Um, Kaiba is tall. He's moody. He's the CEO of a corporation at 16 years old. He's raising his little brother on his own. Um, he is the exact type of anime character that I always fall head over heels for, which is the broody, uh, kind of a piece of shit who's like secretly soft underneath, but you don't get to see it that much. And he's really only soft for his brother. So Kaiba is an up and comer in the, the Duel Monsters game. He has the infamous blue eyes, white dragon that he's hunting down. And so... What we see in the beginning of season one is uh, Yugi and his friends playing the card games. Yugi's grandfather is the one that gives him the puzzle um, and he solves it. And then Pegasus, who I mentioned, uh, invents the game Duel Monsters, kidnaps Yugi's grandfather. And so uh, he does that so that he can uh, basically manipulate Yugi into participating in a Duel Monsters competition that Pegasus has kind of put together. So it's the first Duel Monsters tournament. He's trying to get the strongest players around the world to participate in his tournament. And he's using his Millennium Eye to capture the souls of people that are important to them inside um, cards, essentially. So they take uh, he takes Kaiba's little brother, which is what gets Kaiba there. So it's kind of this kickoff into what is the through line for the whole series, which is it's not just a card game. There are these... Uh, Maleficent energies afoot that have connections back to ancient Egypt. Um, and uh, there's tons of characters who are connected to it along the way that we meet. Um, there uh, is My Valentine. My Valentine is a huge fan favorite. She's like the baddest bitch on earth. Bombshell blonde, her like infamous purple boots. 
Um, and she has a whole deck full of harpy lady, harpy ladies that are, you know, basically the embodiment of feminism, just like badass women. Um, and her and Joey are ultimately endgame. But we have a couple of smaller characters too. Bandit Keith, people love Bandit Keith with his American flag uh, bandana. Um, and he uh, has primarily machine and gun cards. And he's from America, which I think that's pretty funny. We have Weevil, who has a bug deck. So all, all these all these great comrades that come and go throughout uh, the whole series, at least up until when I watched it. And we have that classic Shonen thing, too, where, you know, people are enemies at first. And they become friends along the way. Uh, Weevil and Rex. Uh, Rex is another character who has primarily dinosaur and dragons in his deck. And they, you know, ultimately become allies um, later on in the series. So we have this through line of legendary cards that are special and all-powerful with ties to the ancient past. So Yugi has uh, Exodia, which is the five different cards um, that make up the one Exodia. Uh, And uh, in season one, they're all on a ship to the dual competition Pegasus has laid out. Um, And Weevil throws Exodia over the side of the ship, and Yugi jumps in after Exodia's cards, famously. Um, But there's others, too. The god cards, which come up a little bit later. There's the uh, the blue eyes white dragons can fuse into a blue eyes ultimate dragon, which has three heads. And so all, all of those monsters have ties back to the shadow games. And so, like I said, I only made it up to season three. Uh, I tried to get into the newer seasons um, with like the newer characters. And Yugi keeps coming back, of course, because he's always going to be the main character. But it just didn't grab me because my favorite characters of all time were in seasons two and three. And those characters are Merrick, Ishtar, Darts, and Valen. So those are my three all-time favorite Yu-Gi-Oh characters. And so if you were like a diehard Yu-Gi-Oh fan, you probably are familiar with all three of them. So Merrick Ishtar is the leader and the founder of the Rare Hunters. And he is the younger brother of Ishuzu Ishtar, um, who is, she is trying to quiet the uh conflict that has arisen by awakening the shadow games right she thinks that what pegasus has done is horrible of awakening the shadow games to the modern world and she's trying to solve it she knows that kaiba is the reincarnation of yami's uh, rival pharaoh from back then so she's trying to get him to you know fulfill his prophecy with the god cards of uh, bringing an end to the conflict with yami um so she's she is like a lawful good um, and Merrick is super interesting to me because he is also possessed by a spirit from ancient Egypt. So the the true Merrick, um, in the modern world Merrick, is kind of this sweet, gentle, kind of sickly boy. Um, again, he's a little bit subversive in his masculinity, which I think is, um, again, one of the reasons I love him. Um, and he's a darker skin character, which is nice um, because in anime... A lot of times darker skin characters are really only like painted as like caricatures um, and they're not really given like complex narratives a lot of the time. And Yu-Gi-Oh! I think does a really good job of that. So Merrick is, like I said, a young boy raised in, raised in Egypt. He's Egyptian, but he is possessed by Yami Merrick, which is again the uh, possession of his body by an ancient Egyptian spirit. And he is angry he's really really mad (laughs) so interestingly what i what i also really liked about this is that 
Yami Merrick didn't um, come from a millennial item the same way that uh, Yami Yugi did with the Millennium Puzzle um, or like with Pegasus with the Millennium Eye. Um, and they have another classmate, Bakura, who is also possessed by a game master spirit from ancient Egypt, um, Yami Bakura, who is also possessed by a Millennium Item. But Merricks is spawned from trauma. So um, he was part of this group of people who were tasked with guarding a pharaoh's tomb. Um, and he was really, him and his sister both were really abused by their father. And so Yami Merrick kind of spawns out of Merrick's need to protect himself from his father and protect his family, um, his siblings. And he um, banishes their their father to the Shadow Realm in the dub. And I think in the original that he actually kills him, but in the dub, he's banished to the Shadow Realm. And so when Merrick is not in his dark version, um, again, he's a little bit smaller. Uh, he's got like a sort of feminine body shape. He's got long hair, long blonde hair. He's beautiful, honestly. And then when he's possessed, he has the Yugi hair. It's like stands straight up. He gets a, a little bit fuller, stronger. He gets, uh, again, more more severe facial features. And the Millennium Eye appears on the on his forehead. And his Millennium item is the rod. Uh, and, uh, the millennium rod just kind of like channels the, the dark energy from the shadow realm, helps him banish people, all that good stuff. Um, and so I, I really, really liked him, um, because he does have this almost redemption arc in the end where he decides within himself that he doesn't want to be this severe version, which I think is really cool. Um, and so season two is uh, probably one of my favorites. Season two is Battle City, where uh, Seto Kaiba hosts his own duel competition after basically just just totally wiping out Pegasus and ruining his reputation. Um, and so they have uh, this Battle City where um, Kaiba sets the rules. And Battle City is actually the setting of my the, my favorite uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! video game. So like I mentioned, Yu-Gi-Oh! really didn't have legs in the video game space all that much. Um, Pokemon really took that took that over. But the one video game that I loved from Yu-Gi-Oh! was a Game Boy Advance game was The Sacred Cards. And it was so fun. Um, and I rediscovered it recently. And I actually still have my Game Boy and it still works. So I just ordered The Sacred Cards off of eBay. And I'm really excited for it to come so I can play it again. But it like follows the plot of season two, which is Battle City, but you're your own original character, which is really fun. So you're not like playing as Yugi or anybody, you're your own like original MC. But that is where the uh, plot line with the God cards starts. So the God cards are uh, the Winged Dragon of Ra, uh, the um, Obelisk the Tormentor, and Slifer the Sky Dragon. So Yugi has Slifer the Sky Dragon, Merrick has the Winged Dragon of Ra, and Kaiba has Obelisk the Tormentor because they are the three pharaohs destined to battle one another in the end, right? So it's it was just really fun, and it's uh, lots of really good lore that I really enjoyed. Um, and of course, ultimately, Yugi wins in the end and ends up with all three cards, right? Um, but the result of that is that he frees Merrick's spirit, and Merrick goes back to being soft and gentle and kind, which is really nice. So that's just a quick synopsis of season two. And then season three was truly a gay awakening for me. My other queers who are listening and have and who also watched Yu-Gi-Oh! You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. 
um, Darts, Valen, and Alistair were like truly the one of the first examples that I remember of seeing like men in a show just absolutely playing, subverting, and on, on like kind of fighting against masculinity almost. It was so fun. Like Alistair, to this day, like I even remember back then there were um, people you know, I went to school in the South. Um, and there were definitely parents that were like, Alistair from Yu-Gi-Oh is like promoting homosexuality. Like it was really, it was, it was pretty controversial at the time. I won't lie, but I fell in love with all three of them. And it was like one of the first times I remember being like, do I want to be with them or do I just want to be them or both? Like it was truly like, Super, super gender feels. But I really loved that season also because Yugi actually gets um, his soul locked inside the seal of the Orichalcos, which is the the lore mechanic for season three. And we won't get into the whole thing, but it's um, a seal of like the power of dragons. Again, still related to ancient Egypt. But so the main character in season three is actually just Yami. Uh, Yugi's really not in it at all. And it's really just the Pharaoh himself trying to save Yugi. And it's the first time he really has to reckon with the responsibility that he's taken on by possessing a 15-year-old's body. So I thought that was really cool and a, and a fun place to direction to take it in. So the main antagonist is Darts, who I am wholly, truly obsessed with. Um, he is the last kind of descendant of Atlantis. So his story is all tied to this like lost city of Atlantis. So again, lots of deep lore. Um, but he has this long flowing teal hair that goes all the way down his back and he has heterochromic eyes. One is gold and one is teal. And he has this kind of like tinkling sing songy voice. Um, he has ear piercings. Um, he has these really ornate intricate outfits, like the all purple suit. He's just beautiful. And I really, really was like attached to him um, when I was much younger. So he, again, has like this dueling tournament to uh, try and seek revenge for the lost city of Atlantis. And the dual disc design for this series of the legendary dragons is so beautiful. And I actually had a replica of the battle city dual disc and the, um, great legendary dragons dual disc and i wore them around all the time i was totally obsessed and so the you know the gang has to again fight darts you know there's the uh they have what's called the orichalco soldiers um which are like these creatures that fight on behalf of darts for for atlantis um and uh they have essentially used darts to try and bring back the great leviathan um and so the great leviathan is kind of a through line for any atlantis story like even the disney movie atlantis has the great leviathan in it um but he essentially would destroy the world and create a new one that would be free of evil and restore the lost city of atlantis it's the same old story same story as star wars um you know the the empire and the first order wants to destroy the world and create a, a world that is free of inequity by way of, um, I guess, fascism. Totally makes sense, right? Um, but of course, Starts gets drunk on power. So they have to bring him down. But I, I was just totally enamored with him and with the whole entire, like, um, Orichalcos team. So um, uh, I mentioned Alistair. So Alistair is this, like, tall, 
uh, he's honestly very sexy. He's tall. He has this like sweeping black coat with like a whole bunch of like leather straps with like a really, really revealing white crop top and like a red kind of like lob hairstyle also has a pretty high pitched voice. Like he's super, super, super androgynous. Um, and I was obsessed with him, loved him. Um, and so, you know, he, he was the one that everyone was kind of, you know, really pressed about. Um, and they all have these like individual motivations, right? So he has this action figure from his brother. And so Alistair is really positioned as Kaiba's immediate rival throughout this, right? He's kind of paired with Kaiba, um, because he has this history with him. Kaiba's company was inadvertently responsible for the death of his brother, Mikey. So he hates Seto Kaiba. And they honestly, uh, their character designs are pretty similar. So they're both tall. They both have like these similar haircuts. They have the a similar sort of like leather strappy trench coat character design. And they're both highly motivated by their brothers. But I would say like Alistair is like the queer version of Kaiba, um, like on the tin. But if you ask me, Kaiba is also pretty queer. But um, so. He, uh, Alistair also has a tune deck, which is interesting because that's also the type of deck that Pegasus used, which Kaiba specifically hates Pegasus, right? So again, kind of callbacks to previous seasons, um, which is really fun as a viewer. You know, you like those, those kinds of, um, through lines that feel familiar while still, you know, telling a new story, which is great. Um, and then Valen. So Valen oh my gosh, literally was one of my first crushes. He has this like really heavily played up, stylized, probably not authentic, like Cockney accent. Um, And he is meant to be Joey's immediate rival. So, and that totally makes sense because he um, has the same love interest. So uh, Valen and Joey are basically fighting for my Valentine's um, love the entire time. They're kind of duking it out for Mai and she keeps going back and forth between them. But of course she chooses Joey in the end because Joey is essentially a main character. But he's this short, like rough and tumble street rat, essentially, that darts kind of rescued off the streets. Um, And he um, is, again, one of those like rough on the outside type characters, soft in the middle, that really just wants to be loved. Um, And I had the biggest crush on him. He is just... Ugh, everything I wanted in a man back then. Um, and so I really, really loved season three uh, and uh, probably watched it multiple times just to just to look at Darts and Valen and Alistair. And so that is basically where my journey with the manga and with the anime ends um, because I loved it so much and I played the video game, The Sacred Cards, so often that I got totally enamored obsessed with the actual card game um and so i from the time i was like seven years old started building my deck and i uh have really fond memories actually of my dad taking me to the card shop when i was young like really young like probably like like i said like six seven eight years old taking me to the card shop buying decks um and then when i got into like middle school and high school and i was kind of hanging out with my friends alone Um, I remember there was a Kmart right next to the movie theater in my hometown and we would go to Kmart before the movies and like buy snacks and bop around. Um, and I would always have to get a new card pack from Kmart every single time we went. 
Um, and I got really into it and I, and I memorized the strategy. Um, I built my deck up around a specific monster set and I really, 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 really got into it. Um, and so I, I actually still have the remnants of my deck, um, in my, uh, little fandom bookshelf in, in my house. And, uh, I still have a lot of those original cards and, uh, they're kind of frayed at the edges. They're definitely not collectible quality, um, because I actually played with them like in regional tournaments. And I used to be really embarrassed about that. I used to think that was like kind of embarrassing that, you know, I was like playing Yu-Gi-Oh! semi, semi-professionally as like a teenager. But looking back, I actually think it's pretty cool. And I think it's cool that I had people in my life that would take me to do those things. You know, back then I had friends that were still super into Yu-Gi-Oh! And we would like trade cards and we would duel each other. Um, I had a neighbor, um, like a down the street neighbor that we would play all the time. um, And we would trade and we would uh, get in trouble in school all the time because we would be playing Yu-Gi-Oh! in class when you're obviously not supposed to do that. And so I have a lot of like fond friendship, childhood memories tied to playing the card game. And again, like lots of gender feels attached to Yu-Gi-Oh too. Like I, uh, it was one of the connections, connecting points that I had to my guy friends and kind of like helped me feel like I had that camaraderie with other guys, which was great. And uh, I ended up kind of having a combination of all of the main characters decks, um, which I think is kind of like the goal of of the franchise, right? Like you see them play the game, um, you get attached to them, and then you build your deck out based on their cards, right? So I loved the Harpies and the Amazons. I loved the dragon cards. I was super into them. I loved a lot of the Paladin, like fusion cards. Uh, a lot. I had lots of elves in my deck. Um, I, I was super, super into it. Um, and then uh, I remember my at one point, my my dad actually did get super into it with me, um, and like built a deck of his own, and like we would duel, which was really fun. And I remember getting frustrated because he got better than me at it. Um, at one point, and was like beating me a lot. And it's like, of course, right? Because he's like a full grown adult and I'm like 13. So like, of course, he's better at card strategy than me, right? But it was um, motivating at the time to get better. And there was kind of this like ongoing, like running inside joke um, amongst people in the Yu-Gi-Oh! community that the manga writers and like the showrunners for the anime, like they didn't have continuity teams, like checking the rules of the game. So us fans who were like dueling competitively in regional competitions, like knew the rules better than the show did. And I remember because the show has a lot of episodes that spend a lot of time explaining the rules of the game. And I think that was very intentional so that they could sell cards and people could, you know, actually play the card game out in the world. And it was very smart. Um, But I don't know if they accounted for those of us teens who have the like hyper fixation chip in our brain where we just completely saturate our brains with the content and like the the property to the point where we can recite it to you backwards and forwards, which is again, the thesis statement of this podcast. And so in the first tournament, like Pegasus's tournament, there's a specific set of rules, you know, you have to get a certain number of, of stars and, um, you know, you can, you have to sacrifice a certain number of monsters to summon more powerful monsters and only certain trap cards can be used on certain turns. Um, there's all these rules around terrain, which Pokemon actually then incorporated later on into their games, like into their video games started incorporating terrain. Um, but terrain plays a big role in Yu-Gi-Oh! 
especially if you have a deck that's terrain based. So, um, you know, if you have like aquatic monsters, you have to use the Umi card, which like turns the, the dual field into the ocean, right? So that you can actually play your aquatic monsters. So there's all these rules. And uh, the show started to develop this habit of pretending like the rules don't exist so that they can move the plot forward, Um, which for the average viewer, and actually probably most people that watched Yu-Gi-Oh! didn't catch it and didn't care at all. But like for the subset of us who were like duelists ourselves, like I said, I had replica duel discs like from the show. We were like, that's not the rules. Like, it doesn't work like that. Like, you can't do that. Like, super annoying. Like, the, um, actually, uh, and, uh, I think as a 13 year old, I was probably especially annoying in this area. But it was fun because there were these online communities where we could go and talk about that, right? Like, I mentioned, um, Quizilla in my Fall Out Boy episode, and, uh, Quizilla was really big for Yu Gi Oh! too. It was kind of like a fandom home base for a long time. Um, it was also where I consumed a lot of Inuyasha content, and I will, Definitely do an Inuyasha episode in the future as well. But um, yeah, that was where it was just like this fun like forum where we could go and like complain about the show not following its own rules. Um, and it was nice. And, you know, I would get like dual tips from people and we would chat about like the cards we were using. Um, and I remember talking about sacred cards on there, too. Um, and sacred cards had its own rules, too. So I thought that was nice because it's this card game. And there are not this universal set of rules. It like depends on the tournament that you're playing and like which tournament rules you're using. Um, so it, it really functioned. I felt like a real like game league. Um, and uh, you had these like characters that you could connect to that were playing the same game. You could connect to people in real life who are also doing that. Um, and so I, I wanted to do this episode because uh, if you're not familiar, the creator of Yu-Gi-Oh! Kazuki Takahashi uh, passed away last year, actually on the 4th of July of last year. Um, so the anniversary of his death is, is coming up in a couple weeks. Um, and I, he just touched so many people's lives with Yu-Gi-Oh! Um, and I think creators never really know the impact that they're going to have in their life. You never know if something is really going to take off. Um, it's kind of the... the um, gamble that you'd play as a creator. And that's why I think I, I talk about this a lot on my blog, but like creating for the sake of creation is the goal for me. Um, and just making things because I'm excited about them and I'm, and I'm passionate about them. Right. Um, not because you're trying to get famous or rich or anything, but you know, there is something really beautiful and reverent about making something like Yu-Gi-Oh that has such a lasting impact um, on the world. And, um, it's still a really, really vibrant community. The Yu-Gi-Oh community is still really vibrant and there's, uh, you know, newer animes, there's spinoffs, there's people who still compete in dueling tournaments. Um, my fiance's coworker still travels to Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments and plays. Um, and the lasting power of that is just so rare, I think. Um, and to have built out this universe that was just so rich, not just with lore, um, but with game mechanics, with, um, relationships between the characters that feel really real and really genuine. Takahashi really, I think for me at least is a, kind of a legend in the manga space. I think that he really 
created something really, really, really special. I think it was like a big loss to the anime and manga and gaming community um, when he passed away last year. Um, and uh, I, it's just been on my mind because the anniversary of his death is coming up. So people are talking about Yu-Gi-Oh! again, um, kind of more, I guess, frequently online than, than what I would say is probably typical. You know, there's not a ton of like new innovative things happening around Yu-Gi-Oh! right now. Um, there's still, of course, like I said, uh, anime spinoffs and people still play the game, but there's not those like big announcement type things that continue to happen around it. But um, I also, I recently went to Animazement uh, and there were still some Yu-Gi-Oh! cosplays at Animazement uh, in 2023, which, you know, like I said, the, the legacy and the staying power of that is, is amazing. Um, and um, he continued to advise on Yu-Gi-Oh! like all the way up until his death, which is great, right? Like, I think being as a creative, like being able to continue to advise on things um, that you helped create is is awesome. And, you know, he stopped writing uh, after a while, as as you know, most people do as they age, but, um, you know, still continuing to have that like creative um, lens on it, I think is is really wonderful. And I also had a lot of respect for Takahashi because he didn't shy away from uh, expressing his political opinions with his art. Um, I, a lot of, uh, mangakas do that, um, and, and say something with their art. They, they, uh, use the creative control of their characters to talk about things that matter. Uh, I think that, you know, he, he really made a lasting impact and, and I'm definitely thinking about him, uh, this summer. And I, again, recently rediscovered the, the Sacred Cards video game. So when that comes in the mail, I'm going to be playing that again. I went and looked through my deck again recently and kind of rediscovered all of those old cards. Um, and I'm being, I'm also thinking about going back and rewatching, um, some of the older seasons that I loved so much. Um, I haven't revisited it in a long time. Um, actually during the initial lockdown in during COVID in 2020, I did rewatch Yu-Gi-Oh's seasons one through three. Um, as kind of like a comfort media. Um, and I don't know about you, but for me, anything that I watched in 2020 kind of has this specific emotional vibe around it, like, cause it was just a specific moment in time, but it's, it's a really comforting series for me. So I think I'm going to go back and revisit it again. Maybe might poke around and see what, uh, local events there are around. Um, again, I'm kind of an old hat when it comes to Yu-Gi-Oh! I haven't watched any of the new seasons. I don't, I'm not that familiar with any of the new monsters, but I think that there are a lot of guys my age who are, uh, kind of in the same boat. So, um, gonna try and, yeah, see if I can reconnect with Yu-Gi-Oh! a little bit. I also, uh, have a DVD copy of Yu-Gi-Oh! the movie. Uh, which is the the Pyramid of Light, which came with like exclusive release cards. And uh, that came out in 2004. And I saw it in theaters, which was so amazing. I saw it with my friends in theaters. And it was between seasons three and four. So it's like about the God cards still, of course. And there's this like, this new threat of the world coming through Anubis, um, which is like another tomb that they found, you know, digging in Egypt, going through the pyramids. And it has one of the best early 2000s movie soundtracks of all time, in my opinion. Uh, Kaiba's theme song is one of the best theme songs I have ever heard. It is so good. It's called You're Not Me. And it's like such an angsty pop punk, like, 
jam. I'm just totally obsessed with it. Like the soundtrack of the Yu-Gi-Oh movie really captures the the musical identity of the early 2000s and it just speaks to me so intrinsically. So, I might rewatch that DVD. Um I uh got the like exclusive collector's edition when it came out on DVD that came with like the limited edition cards, um which is like the Pyramid of Light and like the Sphinx cards. Um and I still have it and I love it. Uh, I love the homoerotic subtext of Yugi and Kaiba in that movie. Um, it is just delicious. So yeah, I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to dive back in because um, so I saw a TikTok recently that said your late twenties and thirties is about rediscovering all the things that you liked as a kid without all of the shame. Um, and that's exactly what this podcast is about. So I'm looking forward to uh, reconsuming some Yu-Gi-Oh content with fresh eyes, with adult eyes, um, and kind of seeing how it lands and see if it holds up and see if I'm just as in love with Merrick and Darts and Valen and Alistair as I was in, in 2003. And, you know, see if those like, uh, queer identity awakening things, um, still feel as salient now and, and kind of like recontextualizing them in my life as an adult queer man. I think I will probably do quite a few episodes contextualizing shonen um, in queer masculine identity. Um, I think, you know, shonen, like I said, is really geared towards young boys. And uh, a lot of shonen is like traditionally masculine. But I've heard lots of queer men my age talk about really kind of discovering their own brand of masculinity through anime and manga and shonen. So I think that's a pretty common experience. Um, And I think there's a couple of examples um, in anime that kind of reflect that, Um, Yu-Gi-Oh! only being one of them. Um, So I will definitely get into that in a future episode. But yeah, so that is um, all I have for you today on Yu-Gi-Oh! This is one of the nerdier episodes I'll probably do. Yu-Gi-Oh! is kind of like considered a, a super nerd property. Um, in 2023. And um, I uh, hope that you enjoyed it. And if you're a Yu-Gi-Oh fan, I hope that you feel seen. I hope that you feel heard. I hope you feel in community. Um, And if you're not a Yu-Gi-Oh fan, or you never watched it when you were young, or if you were like a Pokemon only type of person, I would encourage you to check it out. Just dip your toes in, see how you feel. Um, It's camp, it's culture, it's a good time. Otherwise, I will see you in the next episode of the Get Your Fix podcast. And thank you so much for hanging out with me. If you like the show and you enjoyed this episode, uh, you can subscribe and turn on automatic downloads on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're feeling um, especially into the project, you can leave me a review. Um, It really goes a long way to help people see the show. And come chat with me about all things fandom over on Instagram or Twitter. You can find me at GetYourFixPod on all platforms. Um, I also upload episodes to YouTube for free. So that's more your jam. Check that out. And um, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you in the next one.